Welcome to Folkways, an auditory stroll through the rich and fascinating folklore of Britain and Ireland. The beliefs and culture of people who made this cluster of northerly islands their home. From music to psychogeography to what to do if you notice the devil following you to church. It's a long, strange trip and there are no guarantees you'll be home in time for dinner. Hello, you're listening to Season 2, Episode 6, where we continue our exploration of the other world. But this month, it is story time. Make yourself a drink, sit back and relax as we head to the north coast of Cornwall. In the west of Cornwall, on its north coast, there is a village called Zena, most famous, perhaps, for its tale of a mermaid. It's a different story that concerns us today. On the cliff side of Trerine, a couple lived with many children in a two-roomed house, if you could call it that. They ate a simple diet of limpets, periwinkles, fish and potatoes, Though they were poor, they were a healthy, good-looking bunch, especially one of their daughters, Cherry. She could run as fast as a hare, and her eyes often glinted with a mischief that was all her own. A fever had been growing in Cherry's body as she neared her 16th birthday. She felt her edges bristling with energy. Cherry's schoolmate, Eloin, paraded her new dress, smartly trimmed with ribbons of a deep emerald colour, in front of Cherry one afternoon. Cherry felt her chest tighten as she scanned the glossy satin bows. Her parents, still, weren't able to afford anything like this, even after years of promising she would have such a dress. This mattered because, with it, she would go to Morva Fair. Nobody, Cherry thought, could ever understand what this might mean for her. It was a lot more than a heap of material. She'd be able to go to the fair looking presentable, like someone of worth that you might like to get to know. A job, opportunities, would be waiting for her. She felt the unknown pulling at her like a magnet each twilight. Though she was only 16, she felt like she'd been kicking around on this patch of ground for many lifetimes. The build-up of desire, of passion, felt like it might scorch the earth as she lay in the long grass one evening, watching her siblings, unseen, under a waxing crescent moon. This evening, in midsummer, would be the last one Cherry would spend at the house for a long time. She knew it, too her heart swimming as she lifted her head towards the sky. You're listening to the third instalment of our series on the other world, The Adventures of Cherry of Zena.
The next morning, Cherry informed her parents matter-of-factly that she was leaving to get a job and would return whenever she was able to. She tied up a few belongings in a bundle and stood cheerily at the doorstep. You are bewitched. Her father, known as Old Honey, scanned her face. Mind you don't get taken by pirates, sailors or smugglers. Cherry smiled at them both, for how would either of them ever understand? And she walked away in the early morning sunshine. The only problem was where to go. Cherry took the road leading to Ludgavan and Galval. When she lost sight of the chimneys of Trurin, however, she swallowed hard, her certainty beginning to fall away for the first time in years. She stopped and looked back towards home. It occurred to her, perhaps she should have come up with more of a solid plan. She couldn't go back though, see her brothers and sisters gloating faces. That image alone spurred her on. She would find something. Cherry at last reached the Lady Downs and walked across what felt like miles of moor. It hard to have any idea where she was going. The spring in her step had long gone and she trudged on, visions of Eloin's perfect dress, laughing figures at Morva Fair and a father's exclamation of you're bewitched looping in her mind. She reached a crossroads on the downs and sat defeated. She scraped her fingernails through her hair and looked down at her boots, caked in mud. She was having a feeling that was quite foreign to the 16-year-old. Doubt. She was watery, unstable. This new feeling was a crisis for her alone, never mind the situation itself. Cherry snapped off some hogweed growing near her feet and rolled it between her palms, the white flowers forming dancing stars. The girl that ran with the hares was exhausted. She stuck the hogweed behind her ear, took out the small amount of food she'd brought and began to eat, tears blurring her vision as her boots bobbed in and out of focus. There was nothing for it. She'd have to go home and tell them she'd made a mistake. Maybe she'd wait for the beginning of autumn, when it was a little cooler, really get a plan together. She wiped her tears with the back of her hand, feeling slightly reassured at this thought of regaining control, when, through her fingers, she saw some feet walking from the centre of the crossroads towards her. Her back arched, shocked at the sudden movement, for she had surely been the only one around for miles. The feet belonged to a well-dressed man who stopped at Cherry and smiled kindly down at her. Cherry sat, not breathing. Her arms tingled. She looked down to see all the hairs on them standing on end. Morning. Do you know the road to Toadnack? That she surely did, but for some reason couldn't tell the gentleman this. Well... I never expected to meet with such luck as this. I left home this morning to look for a nice girl to keep my house for me. Ah, and here you are. He then told Cherry he'd recently become a widower and that he had one son, Austell, of whom Cherry could look after. 
Cherry stared up at the man, keenly aware of a plain, many times mended clothes, and of a surely blotchy, dishevelled face with the wilted hogweed dangling over one ear. He wanted to hire her. Yes, sir, she politely said after he had finished talking. So, shall we go? He rubbed his hands together as if all business had been seen to, still smiling kindly at the sitting Cherry. Cherry pulled herself up, still confused how she had not seen or heard him approaching. She knew the dangers of adventuring with strange men, yet this one brimmed with a warmth and a genuine interest in her so that the girl who ran with hares and hounds found herself consenting to go with him. Where did you say you came from again, sir? The man squinted at Cherry of Zena and gave another warm and brilliant smile. They walked back through the crossroads, he talking so kindly and hypnotically to Cherry that she was unsure of where or for how long they walked. This should have been moorland, surely, but after a while they arrived at a lane so shaded with trees that a slither of sunshine scarcely gleamed on the road. Everywhere Cherry looked was abundant with greenery and flowers. The reddest of ripe apples hung from the trees directly over her head, whilst honeysuckle perfumed the sweet air. Cherry breathed deeply. To think she thought she'd been upset earlier, ready to go home. To go home! What a fool she'd been. All these years, she knew an adventure like this was beckoning to her, reaching out to her, like her hands now reached out to touch the flowers above. Time slipped through her fingers. She wished it would never end. And then, they came to a stream of water over the lane in front of them. It was deep, dark, and it wasn't clear how they would cross. The gentleman put his arm around Cherry's waist and carried her over. She was confused by this, since his touch had been so light, she had felt weightless. The lane continued on the other side, although the trees grew thicker and thicker until they blocked out the sky completely, whilst the lane itself seemed to get narrower and narrower and to be rapidly going downhill. Cherry concentrated on her steps, feeling sucked downwards. In the distance, what looked like a gate was visible. Perhaps they were going there. Sure enough, upon approaching, the man opened it and they stepped through to a garden of exquisite beauty. Cherry walked in a silent stupor, lips parted as her eyes tried to drink it all in. She had never seen anything like this before. Fruits of many kind, some she didn't recognise, grew in abundance all around her. Flowers burst out of everywhere, their trumpets grazing her elbows as she turned around and around on the spot. Her grandmother had once said that enchanted places existed. Perhaps this? But no, it couldn't be, for the man by her side was no pisky or goblin, but just a regular human like any other. 
This must just be a corner of Kano she'd never been told about before. She knew that secrets about the adult world had been kept from her. They started walking towards a large house at the bottom of the garden. Cherry's head turned at a noise and saw a child of around three running towards them. He was followed by an old woman who grabbed the child by the arm and dragged him back into the house. Before they disappeared, the woman slowly looked Cherry up and down with an expression that made Cherry freeze. This was a look that could only be described as one of malice. She was not pleased to see the teenager and didn't mind who knew. Cherry settled in well to her domestic duties, pleased to have been given such responsibility for a clearly well-to-do family. There was nothing more she enjoyed than walking around the garden when between duties. She was particularly intrigued by the quality of the light, a brilliant, sparkling light. The sun seemed to shine everywhere, and yet she did not see the sun. The only shadow in her life was the old woman, Aunt Prudence. The master explained this was his late wife's grandmother and that she would remain until Cherry was confident in her role. Cherry was counting down to the day, for this woman was no friend to her. She seemed to delight in making Cherry uncomfortable. The first evening, Aunt Prudence had told Cherry to go to a chamber at the top of the house in which the child was to sleep too. Keep your eyes closed, whether you can sleep or not, as you might see things that you will not like. Prudence then watched, a smile curling on her lips to see the teenager's confused expression. Sometimes, Cherry would look up from her chores to see the old woman staring at her. Prudence would then not avert her eyes but was content to let them continue boring into Cherry's. Cherry would always be the first one to look away, her stomach in knots as she tried to process the weight of that look. Cherry did her best to avoid the hag, as she called her in her own head, often changing direction or leading the child elsewhere when she saw her coming. But old Prudence seemed game for the chase, often emerging silently from behind corners directly into Cherry's path. And then, that look would come again. Cherry told herself it was a small price to pay, however, to live in such splendour. She should be grateful. She rose at the break of each day, then took Ostal to a spring in the garden, where she would anoint his eyes with an ointment. This bottle was kept in a crystal box in a cleft of the granite rock, the rock covered with ivy and mosses. However, she was ordered to ensure the ointment never touched her own eyes. Never. Unsurprisingly, the girl who ran with the hares and hounds had many a question. She would not dream of asking the master, and certainly not the old woman. So she had taken to, as bright and breezy a tone as she could muster, questioning Ostal about the ointment, about prudence, about the light. But he would never answer, instead looking at her, perhaps through her, 
with his bright, dazzling eyes, eyes she'd never seen the like of before. Each day, after applying the ointment to the child, Cherry milked the cow, then attended to her duties inside, such as making butter and cleaning the platters and bowls. Here, old Prudence would inform Cherry that she must avoid all curiosity. She was not to go into any other part of the house. She was not to try and open any locked door. One day, Cherry went to help the master in the garden, picking apples and pears, and then sitting down together to pull up onions. Cherry looked briefly at the window to see the old woman staring back as she knitted. Prudence then slowly mouthed words that Cherry could not understand. Cherry's master was pleased with her work that day, and as she got up from the bed of soil, he swept in low and kissed Cherry of Zena on the mouth. She stopped breathing, motionless, the feeling in her legs gone. <sighs> She'd not seen that coming. Forevermore, the smell of onions fresh out of the ground would remind her of this unexpected moment. Regaining her senses, she instinctively looked from the master's eyes towards the window, but the old woman with her knitting was gone. Cherry continued her duties, keen not to let her very different feelings towards her master and old prudence be seen across her face. She was a professional now. She could handle it all. One evening, after she'd cleared the dinner plates away, she sensed the old woman unusually close behind her. Cherry spun around. Come with me. Old Prudence beckoned her to follow with a flick of the finger. The old woman took her through parts of the house she had never been before. Cherry's mouth became dry, her breathing shallow, as she slowly followed. She was confused. Hadn't it been Prudence herself that had told her never to explore the rooms? And yet, they went deeper and deeper into the house. As the old woman's skirts disappeared around a corner, Cherry had the impression she was being played with. They'd now walked so far though, she would be lost if she tried to make it back on her own. They passed through a long, dark passage, lamps flickering above. Old Prudence was waiting for Cherry at the end, then turned to the girl with an upturned mouth before opening the door before her. They both took off their shoes and entered, Prudence leading with the lamp. Cherry jolted to see the floor look like glass, her own face looking back up in the lamplight. She jumped again, however, to see all around, perched on vast shelves, were statues of people. Some were whole, but many were only the heads and shoulders, or the arms were cut off. Cherry slowly span around, craning her neck, to view this stone village. Her stomach was swimming, the beat of her heart loud in her ears. I mean, they were, they were just statues, just many garden statues. Cherry's panic, however, was how lifelike their expressions. Some were in odd poses, like they'd been frozen. Cherry looked at the lamp bearer 
to see an expression of triumph on the old woman's face. Cherry's distress brought clear satisfaction. <laughs> old Prudence then laughed at Cherry and drove her on, a hand pressed to the small of her back, breath hot on her neck. <laughs> the old woman gestured to a large box on the floor. This will make it all go away, my sweet. Rub the box. Rub till you see your face in it. It will make all the bad things just go away. Old Prudence was speaking to Cherry as if she were an infant. In the teenager's panic, the walls with their many, many faces that all seemed to be looking down at her, she knelt down and began to rub the surface of the box. She just wanted it to be over and placating this horrible old woman she could do. As she continued to rub the box, the thought she'd been trying to keep from her mind upon seeing the first statue arose again. Yes, her grandma had told her about lands of enchantment, but she'd also been told about the so-called conjurers, folk who were no fans of humankind and possessed powers beyond what we, at least, think to be possible. Where was she? She thought of Master again, the sweetness of his kiss amongst the onions. No, no it couldn't be. Whilst lost in thought, she rubbed the edges of the box harder so that it rattled beneath her. At this, it gave a doleful, unearthly sound, discordant as if from the bowels of a hell realm. Cherry instinctively curled up on the floor, hands to ears as her body writhed. Through her blurred vision, she thought, God, she thought she saw movement, as if the bodies on the shelves were beginning to stir. Ah! She screeched, her teeth grinding together, temples on fire. It might well have been the end of the world. Cherry awoke later that evening to find herself lying on the kitchen table, her master sitting nearby. He smiled at her and gave her a drink. Aunt Prudence is gone, Cherry. I've had to let her go. You should never have seen what you did. A shadow passed across his face, an ugliness Cherry had never seen before. One year passed like a summer's day. With the tormentor gone, the house and gardens seemed quite different. They had softened, as had Cherry of Zena's heart. Master would often leave for months, and she would feel a hollowness in her chest until he arrived in the kitchen once more, smiling at her as if he'd never been away. She would then hear his low voice speaking in different parts of the house, although she was certain there was nobody there. For all the luxury she lived in, the ease of her work, the lush, fragrant garden that surrounded her, not to mention her master's kiss. Cherry still could not call herself happy. She would often stare out of the kitchen window onto the garden for minutes at a time, not really seeing the honeysuckle or pear trees. Whilst this grandeur appealed to her five senses, certainly something could be said to be missing. Since the hag had taken her into the forbidden room, 
her mind's eye now regularly conjured the statues. She would find one looking back at the bottom of her breakfast plate or in the water in the spring. She'd see them in the face of Ostal and sometimes her own as she washed her face in the bathroom mirror. The sentence, what bones do I walk upon, seemed to linger in her mind, especially as she lay in bed at night, eyes firmly shut as she'd been instructed to by old prudence. But Cherry of Zena had a plan. One morning, after Ostal was washed, eyes anointed and the cow milked, she sent the child to go fetch her some flowers from the garden. She then, moving sideways, sly as a fox, retrieved the ointment from the crevice in the rock and applied some to her own eye. It burnt terribly, like acid. Cherry threw her head into the water, crying in pain. After the burning had deceased in the pool at the bottom of the water, she saw hundreds of what looked like small humans, and they were just playing limbs nimble and fluid. She then saw Master, as small as the rest of them, playing with them, a kaleidoscope of colours racing across their faces. Cherry backed away from the pool, hair dripping across her face. She couldn't have seen that, it wasn't possible. All was changed. The garden looked different, not to mention these undersized mortals that certainly couldn't exist were everywhere, swinging in the trees, leaping across the grass. The entire garden was alive. Each evening, Master would ride up to the house like the handsome gentleman she'd seen before, as if he'd merely been out hunting or such. But Cherry knew where he'd really been, and what he was. Well, the last part wasn't strictly true, although she knew, human, he was not. This strange charade continued for about a week, him leaving dapper as ever each morning to fool her. And stranger still, each evening, low beautiful music was heard from deep within the house, and his solitary voice talking to nobody. One evening, the day having been dusty and hot, and a fever taking hold of her, Cherry waited until he'd made his way past her into the house. She then waited ten minutes or so as she sipped her cordial, and then followed him. She pressed her lips together, realising she didn't have a plan, much like how she'd set off from Trarine that summer morning. She walked towards the music she heard again playing, taking her deep into the building. She walked towards it, down the long corridor she'd walked through with old prudence. She was heading to the room. Cherry put her eye to the keyhole and... What? And saw her master with lots of very attractive women, all singing. She'd seen none of these women enter the house. There was one, dressed like a queen in the most exquisite fabrics, who was regularly kissed passionately by Master. Cherry fell away from the keyhole. Despite everything, veins flooded with jealousy. 
Unusually, Master stayed home the next day to gather fruit. As they collected pears together, Cherry's throat burned with all she wanted to say. I'm thinking it would be good to make some kind of pie with these. He was oblivious, wittering about this and that in his ever-personable, velvety tone. Why was he performing in this way, pretending to be somebody he was not, Cherry wondered, discarding a pear riddled with holes. When the final fruit was in the basket, he swept down again to kiss Cherry. The flames in her throat, however, were ready to scorch. Her hand struck his cheek. Why don't you kiss your fellow small people who like to play with under the water? Like your children! He drew back, his expression turning to ice. Before daybreak the next morning, Cherry was called by Master. He demanded her to follow him into the darkness outside lantern in hand. They walked for miles and miles, Cherry running to keep up, all the time going uphill through lanes and narrow passages. In the semi-darkness, it was hard for Cherry to know if they were moving through the same landscape as before. Tree branches scraped at her hair and face. It was dawn by the time they came to level ground. It looked like a moor though it was hard to say. Master kissed Cherry of Zena on the forehead, telling her Aunt Prudence would have to come back now. See, Cherry was being punished for her curiosity. If you behave yourself, I might occasionally come to the moors to visit you. Saying this, he walked away from her, his body disappearing into the early morning mist. The sun now rose, the first time Cherry had seen it in a considerable time. She seated herself on a nearby granite rock, staring, unmoving, at the fiery disc. She must be the only soul for miles upon miles, a desolate moor having taken the place of paradise. Long did Cherry sit in sorrow, the bleakness of her surroundings a stark reminder of what she'd just lost. Somehow, the girl who ran with hares, hounds and horses arrived home in Trarine. Her family had supposed her dead, and when they saw her at the bottom of the garden, they believed her to be her own ghost. Few people believed Cherry of Zena's story, yet from this day to her last, she never varied her account. Indeed, each time she got a certain look, her eyes misty and wet, as she described looking down to see her own arm hair standing on end, the time she'd seen the boots come out of nowhere on the moors. If it was to win favours or popularity, she was going about it quite the wrong way, for the once desirable girl was now marked as odd. Now she'd experienced such luxury, she never bothered her parents for fancy clothes, but seemed content in her old, darned outfits. There was nothing for her at Morva Fair, after all. They say Cherry of Zena was never quite right after her adventure, and on moonlit nights until she died, she would wander on the Lady Downs to look for her master.
You've been listening to Folkways, the Folklore of Britain and Ireland podcast, written and produced by myself, Ashley. Music by Big Big Sky. Find him on socials and streaming platforms at big.pig.sky. Be sure to connect with the show on Instagram at Folkways Channel. If you'd like the Folkways tree to grow and bear fruit, please consider watering its roots. This episode was made possible by the Friends of Folkways. Friends are excellent humans who chip in to help me afford the books I buy for each episode. If you think preserving this work is a worthwhile endeavour, you can join the Friends from only £2 a month, in return receiving instrumental soundtracks, letters in the post and coming soon meditations. Sharing it with a pal or leaving a good rating wherever you're listening to this also helps the show to grow. Thank you. May the gods of the soil, sky and links of your ancestral line bless you. It's now time to tune into Folkways FM. The ship is apparently still heading north and is currently in Whitehaven, I've been told, where the crew have been enjoying strolling around Whitehaven Castle, did you know? So without further ado, let's try and pick them up. The warmest of welcomes to September 2022's Almanac. September, from Septum 7. It is a bit weird calling the ninth month the seventh, isn't it? This happened because it was originally the seventh month of the old Roman calendar, which began the year in March. Julian calendar reform shifted the new year back two months. September replaced Heligmanath and Heavestmanath in Old English, names meaning the holy month and harvest month respectively. Scots Gaelic, Intultine, Irish, Manfor, Manx, Mainfoward, Welsh, Merdi, Cornish, Mies Gwingala. It is time to reap what you sow. Traditionally, the time of harvest continues. If you missed last month's show, check it out where we looked at the beginning of the harvest, Lamas or Lunasar. Harvest Home, also called Ingathering, was a traditional harvest festival or supper which took place after all the grain had been safely stored, generally in late September. In Scotland, this time was called the Kern, from the churn of cream that was presented on the occasion. Farmers would prepare a festive meal for their labourers, who usually danced and celebrated long into the night. We looked last month at some last sheaf rites, where the last of the corn or grain, which represents the spirit of the field, was set up in the house or barn where the feasting was to be held. It's interesting to note that the invention of the mechanical harvester has not only simplified the farmer's work, but has advanced the date of the harvest by almost a month. In England, it is often completed before the end of August, whereas it used to be finished, as I said, in late September. 
although it does differ year to year. For example, this year, 2022, 95% of the total GB harvest was complete as of the 23rd of August. There are lots of other ways to celebrate this time of year, however. Making your own bread is a great one, getting us directly in touch with the harvest's bounty. Don't be afraid of this, imagining some kind of cottage core nightmare. I baked some bread for the first time in ages recently, and um, I was surprised at just how easy it was. But apart from wheat and yeast, of course, the only thing you really need is time. So if you're home one Sunday, it's a great thing to do between other things. And it got me thinking how strange it is that such an easy, easy, fundamental thing to do is now seems slightly eccentric to bake your own bread. That we sit in offices all day and then go and buy some wrapped in plastic. It's hard to unsee when you do have a go yourself and, like I said, see just how simple it is. I do apologise, however, to seasoned bakers who are rolling their eyes to heaven. You'll find a bog-standard recipe in the show notes where you can happily whittle away some September mornings. To be precise, this year the autumnal equinox falls on Friday the 23rd of September. During an equinox, the sun crosses what we call the celestial equator, an imaginary extension of Earth's equator line into space. The equinox occurs when the sun passes through this line. And officially, this date is the first day of autumn. If you woke up in Galway on the 1st of September, the sun rose at 647 and set at 2023. Glasgow, the sun rose at 621 and set at 2011. And Guildford, the sun rose at 615 and set at 1948. The full moon is on Saturday the 10th of September. Names for this moon are Harvest Moon, Wine Moon and the Song Moon. The harvest moon is the best known being given to the moon closest to the autumnal equinox. At this time, for several evenings, the moonrise comes just after sunset. This results in an abundance of bright moonlight early in the evening, which was a traditional aid to farmers harvesting their crops. This is generally quite a spectacular sight and the harvest moon looks like a full moon for a good few nights on the whole, so do circle the weekend of the 10th in your diary for some major moon gazing. The moon is then new again on Sunday the 25th of September. Good old gardener's world suggests this month that you sow hardy greens such as kale, landcress, pak choy, lamb's lettuce and mustard for winter pickings, that's a great idea. Pot up herbs such as chives and parsley and place on a sunny windowsill to use during winter. Cut away any leaves covering the fruit of pumpkins, uh, squash and marrows to help the skins ripen in the sun. 
and pick apples and pears before the wind blows them down and store undamaged fruits if you can't eat them fresh. For foraging, find wild raspberries, wild strawberries. Although it's hard to pick wild strawberries in any quantity, the addition of just a few can add a powerful flavour to puddings such as creme brulee or panna cotta. Also rose hips for wines, jellies and jams, and slows used to make the deep red wintry drink slow gin. In terms of setting you a challenge this month, I'm going to do things a little differently. I think we all know this winter is going to be a difficult one. I've heard it preemptively being called the winter of discontent, amongst other things, and I don't think any of us are under any illusions here. So rather than offer you platitudes, I'd like to suggest you sow the seeds for something that will be of use to you this winter. Clearly I've got no idea what this will look like for you. What I do know however is it feels like we're about to enter the underworld. That's a good mythic way of framing it. It's not particularly helpful for someone to go, oh everything will be fine. Sometimes things aren't fine and we need to be able to say that. This is a dark time, in fact it's clearly been dark for a couple of years, however everything runs in cycles, we're always in motion, always changing and this too shall pass, we will emerge out of the underworld, I can't tell you when or what it will look like but only that it will happen. And actually being able to say those words, this is a dark time, can be helpful for forewarned is forearmed. For example, if we're going into the underworld, we wouldn't wear the same outfit as that to uh, loll around on a sun lounger. We get that the assignment is different. A good one to think about is one of your favourite stories. Our hero or heroine often faces adversity. One I often come back to thinking about is the Lord of the Rings. A source of strength for many, many people, where the unsuspecting Shire dwellers are tasked with destroying an evil that's trying to claim the world, no pressure then. We ourselves are definitely not in the Shire anymore. Where we are in the novel is uh, up for some debate, but um, we are definitely battling the forces of evil. Smidgen dramatic? I'm not sure. So make sure you've got the right clothes for your underworld journey. I don't think there's anything too small to be of help. Things can seem small on their own, but over many months can contribute together to something bigger. Never lose heart, and I'll see you when we emerge on the other side. Shapers, get the butter out. 